Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennium Money Professional. My name is Dev Raga, and I'm your host. And in this episode, we'll go through some more Q&A questions, specifically talking about side hustles, We'll also talk a little bit about burnout and also some of the things about cars and particularly for doctors. And also we'll talk about retirement and why some people think you can retire on a superannuation of about two hundred and fifty to $300,000. Let's get started. Now, if you have any specific questions or comments, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. And remember the three main aims of this channel, education, empowerment, and entertainment. The first question is from Anon who says, how can health practitioners be more acknowledged? And because we work tirelessly and we are often burnt out during the current situation and in general, I feel that we're not praised enough for our hard work. Um, Sometimes it's just a simple thank you that would make our day a lot better and help us get through the day. And part two of that question is, what do you think about side hustles or making overtime uh, work in terms of income because it's so heavily taxed, it's almost not worth it? Now, Anon, I agree. Look, a simple thank you um, goes a long way and the issue of burnout is a real problem amongst healthcare workers. Um, Having said that, I don't think that we need to be thanked every single day. Um, but certainly the odd thank yous goes a long way. And look, I mean, I get a lot of thank yous at work um, and I get a lot of appreciation for the care that I provide for my patients. So it may be the type of clients that um, some people are dealing with and it might be in your situation. Um, Some professions get more thanks than other professions, particularly in healthcare. Uh, There are some specialties and some allied health professions that get a lot more thank yous. For example, like when you go to the pharmacy, you don't actively thank the pharmacist because they're kind of like removed from the actual pharmacy floor. They're sort of behind that sort of high level, you know, they're working hard, packaging the medications, talking to patients about the pros and cons, the side effect profiles. Maybe we should be thanking our pharmacists a lot more. Your GP specialists often don't get a lot of thanks, um, particularly when they refer a patient to the hospital and the significant diagnosis gets made they don't get that sort of feedback saying, oh, you know, well done for doing that referral. In healthcare, emergency department workers don't get the thanks they often deserve because often the end product happens on the wards or sometimes happens post-operatively and often the surgical team gets more credit, but the initial diagnosis or the referral pathways was initiated in the ED department. So, you know, there's always going to be, you know, professions that get more thanks than the other. But at the same time, I do agree that a little bit of thanks goes a long way. 
I've done a detailed episode, though, specifically about burnout, um, which was in episode 223, if you're interested. I talk about burnout as a clinical syndrome and potentially a diagnosis. Some insurance companies consider that as a diagnosis now. Some income protection insurance companies don't consider that as a diagnosis. Um, I think officially now, I think since that episode, it may actually be listed as a diagnosis medically as well. So um, it's an interesting topic. If you're interested, go back and listen to that. It's a real problem. I think saying thanks goes that little bit extra long way in terms of trying to make healthcare workers feel valued in the type of work that we do. Um, I don't know whether there's much evidence in terms of it actively promoting less diagnoses of burnout. I'm not sure about that. I haven't seen data about it, but certainly overall, it's you know quite nice to be able to um, be thanked for what we do. Having said that, the second part of the question from Anon was, what about side hustles or making overtime uh, payments because, you know, it's so heavily taxed, it's almost not worth it. Now, I do take issue with Anon's view on that side hustles and making overtime means it's heavily taxed and it's almost not worth it, quote unquote. I say this often and I'll see it again. If you're paying a lot of taxes, it means you've made a lot of money and making a lot of money is always a good thing. Now, never buy into this myth that I work extra and pay half in tax, therefore I shouldn't work extra and make more money because I think that's a very bad mentality to have. And unfortunately, a lot of healthcare workers get sucked into this and they say this all the time. In my experience, personally, I think nursing staff are at increased risk of saying this all the time. And um, many nurses have said this exact thing to me over the years. Now, my general philosophy is never, ever be afraid to make more money and never be afraid to pay taxes because it means that you've made that money. Now, tax minimization is something a lot of people focus on way too much rather than actually focusing on making more money. Tax minimization, don't get me wrong, is important. And I think, you know, if you want to do it legally and if you want to pay uh, less taxes legally, that's completely fine. But that's secondary for me. I never focus on it as a primary thing. I never say no to more money for the hard work that I do. And this is a mindset thing. For me, it's okay to make more money and it's okay to pay a little bit of extra taxes, even if it, you know, nudges that sort of 40, 45% extra tax. Now, my general philosophy is work hard, maximize income and ensure you utilize that money in the best, most effective and efficient way possible. And if it means that there are some tax minimization strategies that you can utilize, then go for it, but never get sucked into, I'm not working hard because I pay too much tax because that is a deadly mentality to have. So I don't think it's a good thing to think like that. Now, question two is from Amy who says, why is it that people like the barefoot investor and my own super company say that a person can comfortably retire on a super amount of about two hundred dollars to $300,000 uh, with the primary residence paid off. And this seems very low. Now, Amy, that's a really good question. And to be honest, I'm not sure why people say that. It's not really targeted at the higher income spectrum, which most of our listeners are. I think they tend to factor in the fact that you might be reliant on aged pension and government support in your retirement. And that personally, I don't plan to rely on any government support during my retirement. Um, I don't think anyone should plan either because I think planning to rely on the government during retirement is a recipe for disaster. Now, technically, you could have that low of a super and retire but I'd feel very, very uncomfortable with that sort of advice. 
uh, particularly starting out as a young person. Now, aged pension for me is really designed to help those that really need it. And I think we should try and avoid it as much as possible in our lives. And to be honest, I think the eligibility moving forward will be um, getting harder and harder. So certainly I'm not aiming to retire on super of just two hundred dollars to $300,000. Now, having said all this, if you do have that low of a super and you think you're going to be having that low of a super to retire on, I think it's useful to know the thresholds up to which you can still claim the full aged pension because you may have to rely on the full aged pension in order to have a, you know, a relatively comfortable or decent retirement. Uh, and that depends on whether you're a homeowner or not a homeowner. And also depends on whether you're a single person or a couple. So for homeowners, if you're single, the threshold of assets is $280,000. And for couples, it's $419,000. This is outside of their home that's fully paid off. And for non-homeowners, for singles, it's $504,500. And for couples, it's $643,500. Now, these figures are accurate as I record this in uh, April. Now, the limits for claiming part-aged pension, which a lot of people end up still claiming because they may not be eligible for the full-aged pension, is if you're a homeowner and you're single, you can have up to $622,250 in assets. If you're a couple, you can have up to $935,000 in assets apart from your home. If you're a non-homeowner, and if you're single, you can have $846,750. And if you're a couple, you can have up to $1.159 million. Now, if you're a couple, but if you're separated by illness, and if you're a homeowner, you can have up to $1.1 million and still access the aged pension partly. And if you're a non-homeowner, and you're separated by illness and you're a couple, you can have up to $1.328 million dollars. So the age pension, although the actual amount, the, you know, the, the aggregate amount is not much, the eligibility is actually pretty generous, I think. I mean, if you're a non-homeowner, you can have over a million dollars as a couple and still have eligibility of some level of part pension to supplement your income in retirement. And I think it's important to know that these limits are outside of your home value. Owning a home in Australia doesn't impact on whether you can claim the aged pension or not because it doesn't count towards your asset pool for eligibility. But the amount of asset pool that you can have, depending on whether you have a home or not, is different and also different for singles and couples. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about the age pension that I need to really call out the government on is that it really does favour couples. Now, you may say that, you know, if you're a couple, you know, you need more money and therefore as a result, as an age pensioner, you should have more money and that's completely fine. But if you're single, it really does disproportionately affect you because when you think about it, your housing costs, your general utilities um, because of the service fees, particularly for water, electricity and gas, you know, there are some costs that you would still need to have as a single person or as a couple and it kind of disproportionately affects you negatively if you're single because, you know, rent is not any cheaper for those people that are having to rent a unit, for example. And at the moment, the rents are crazy high. And if you're a couple, then the rent is kind of similar. It's not as if you're paying double the rent. Similarly, when you think about the amount of money that you need 
in order to feed a one person versus feeding two people, you know, disproportionately, it does cost you more to accumulate those, you know, items in order to cook because you need to drive a car, you know, go to the shopping center, do your grocery shopping and come back or have online deliveries or whatever it is that you may have. The amount of ingredients, the amount of stuff that you need to buy in order to prepare a meal for one person is disproportionately a little bit more expensive on a percentage basis compared to the effort and the amount of money that it takes to feed two people. If you have a look at the water bills, you have a look at the utility bills, the electricity bills, the gas bills, the service charges are fixed, whether you're single or whether you're a couple. If you own a home, for example, your council rate is not cheaper if you're single. Uh, your council rate is exactly the same because it's based on your property and its value. So again, I, I kind of feel, you know, feel that this system is kind of skewed against the person who's single. What's interesting is, um, you know, I, everyone knows that I'm not single. I have a family of kids, et cetera. But one of my mates is a single and he notices it all the time. And until he mentioned it to me, I didn't actually notice it. The world around us is kind of skewed against them when you think about it in some elements. For example, when you travel, you know, to actually buy a hotel room, for example, relatively, it's not that much more expensive to buy a hotel for a couple, um, buy a hotel room, that is, uh, to stay in, um, or sorry, rent a hotel room or book a hotel room, beg your pardon, you're buying it. It's not that much more expensive for a couple than it is for a single when you make restaurant reservations, again, uh, it's quite difficult to just make restaurant reservations for single people. You know, most people would assume that you go there as a couple. And when you go to these restaurants, you'll see that the table placements, the number of chairs that each of those tables has is very skewed towards, you know, the couples and also the families. So when you do things as a single person, you tend to realise and you have to pay what's called the single tax. You have to pay a little bit more to get the same pleasure out of a product or service compared to couples and families. And it's something that I didn't really realise until I was actually pointed out by one of my mates um, who's actually single. So it's really, really interesting. And it's a good question. But those sort of thresholds, I think, is really important to know. But the answer to your question, Amy, is I don't think that's a realistic number. I think it's useful for people that have not really focused on their superannuation and they're nearing their retirement. And yes, there are some other options for them to max them out and also have eligibility to claim a full aged care pension or a part pension. But I just don't think people should be aiming for super of between two hundred dollars and $300,000 because I think that's just a recipe for disaster. And we know that the aged pension system is significantly blown out of budget. So the eligibility criteria and the ability to access that in the future is going to be severely limited. And I don't think people should be planning on that in 10, 15, 20, 30 years time. Hopefully that answers your question. We'll just take a quick break. And when we come back, we've got a couple of questions about purchasing new cars for health professionals. And also I've got a question from a JMO, which is a junior medical officer, about some of the tips on how you can save for exams. And then we'll go on a little bit about side hustles as well. Be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now, welcome back. We've got a question uh, from Anon who says, when purchasing new cars, are there any brands that offer significant discounts to healthcare workers? This is an interesting question. And the truth is, I'm not particularly familiar with this sort of question and I'm not particularly sure about this, to be honest. I did some Googling on Anon's behalf from a medical perspective and I found this website called carsfordoctors.com.au and maybe that might be an option, but I've not looked at this service. Now, if you're listening to this and are the owner of that website, don't hesitate to contact me. Maybe we can do an episode on some of the things healthcare workers can benefit from when buying cars. But here's my simple rule about buying cars for anyone doesn't have to be a healthcare worker, etc. Generally speaking, I would be very nervous about committing more than 20% of your yearly after-tax income on the total value of your car. So, if your after-tax income is, you know, $100,000, then I don't think you should be purchasing a car on a routine basis more than value of $20,000. Now, that's an extremely conservative view. Now, there's a caveat to that, unless you're already a net worth millionaire. Now, I know that I'm going to get a lot of heat for saying this, but I think the number one risk that I have faced when I've spoken to healthcare workers, mainly doctors, but I also speak to some of the healthcare workers, is just buying too much house and buying too much car. It's surprisingly common and I think it's surprisingly risky and I think people don't realise and this whole thing about an evaded lease and, you know, just doing a shadow mortgage or just leasing the car, well, it's still a loan and you're still paying interest and you're still paying fees on those loans. And I think you'd be very careful about committing that much money to buying a car. Certainly, if you're a young person, if you're a junior doctor, junior nurse, if you're a junior allied healthcare worker, your primary goal should be not to buy an expensive car, but to save as much money as you possibly can in your younger years and invest that money so that later on, you can buy a new car every single year. How? Because you're going to get hopefully dividends, you're going to get income uh, a little bit later in your life. Now, there is a little bit of caveat. I agree that having a safe car is really important. And, you know, it's fair and well for me to say, oh, just buy a car for 20 grand or 30 grand. Um, you know, one of the first things that I looked for when I had a family is safety. So, you know, there are a couple of situations where you may be able to breach that rule, but I wouldn't breach it by much. And thankfully, in the 21st century, we have a lot more safer cars than what was available in the 20th century. And it's improving some of the things that we have in cars nowadays didn't really exist, like cruise control or radar cruise or airbags, for example, or um, interlocking seatbelts, all that sort of stuff, you know. ABS, um, traction control, a lot of it that we take for granted 
in 2023, buying a new car or buying a used car even from the 21st century uh, didn't really exist in the 20th century. So I think it's really important that we take that into perspective. And I think safety is really important. And it's really, you know, it's a, it's a fair criticism that a cop that um, you really can't get an extremely safe car for like, you know, five or $6,000, but it also depends on the life stage. So one of the things I don't think people should compromise uh, when utilising these rules is safety. So um, certainly really important to focus on that because, you know, as as a doctor and, and I'm sure there's a lot of doctors listening in, you know, trauma surgeons, um, you know, emergency department doctors, um, GP specialists who deal with the aftermath of someone being um, in a trauma situation, particularly motor vehicle accidents, car safety makes a big difference in terms of saving lives. Um, you know, simple things like seatbelts and airbags and uh, ABS and traction control and slip differentials and these sort of technology that, um, you know, we take for granted does save lives along with, you know, not drink driving, not speeding, not using a mobile phone, not using your tablet while you're driving and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. But having said that, I don't know the answer to the question when purchasing new cars. Is there any brands that offer significant discounts to health professionals? I do vaguely remember that the RACGP, for example, had a bit of a deal with Tesla and Mercedes-Benz. And I'm sure the other colleges have some sort of relationship, particularly from a medical point of view. But I'm certainly not aware of the ANMF, for example, having any affiliations with any particular particular car brands or the pharmacy guild or the pharmacy association or the physio association or allied health associations. I'm not familiar with that. So um, if you know of anything like that, I'd be very keen to explore it uh, in any future episodes. And if you're the owner of that website, carsfordoctors.com.au, contact me, we'll have a chat. Now, the next question comes from Anonymous again, who says, I would love to hear about saving for exams. I also think as a JMO, there's a lot of pressure to keep up with high earners in the medical field and how to avoid such pitfalls um, and also any med-friendly side hustles. Now, there's no simple way to answer this. In finance, you know, particularly as a junior doctor, you can practically do two things. You can increase income or you can reduce your expenses because you often don't have much net worth or much investments at that junior level. With regards to lifestyle creep and that pressure of keeping up with higher earners in the medical field, this is a problem, particularly when you're working with other people that do have a high income. And I think switching off social media or even TV is an option, but it's not really a practical option. And I think you have to keep in mind that money and investing and budgeting is mostly behavioural. And once you establish a simple system, it's a matter of executing it. Now, one of the biggest risks for junior medical officers is they'll be liaising with their senior medical officers, their registrars, who may be, you know, driving expensive cars, or their consultants who may be having a big home and inviting them over for Christmas parties and things like that. I think it's a real problem if the JMI is affected for such like that. So I think it's important to keep your eye on the prize. Think about, you know, your money tips and your money principles, your investing principles, your budget principles, and think that all of these are mostly behavioral. And you got to establish that simple system very early on in your career and doing it at the JML level is fantastic. And you need to execute it. One of the things that never affected me was, you know, it'd be nice to know that your boss, um, and I did a lot of surgical terms and a lot of surgeons drive really flashy cars. I used to you know, work with a surgeon who routinely had Bentleys. Now, that didn't really affect me. It was nice. Having a look at his car, it was great cars. Um, the Continental GT had just come out back then, but it didn't really affect me because I figured out very early on in my career that money is mostly behavioural. So the next most important thing 
that I find is the biggest risk for junior doctors is, in quote, I will wait until later on when I earn a lot of money as a consultant. The problem with this attitude is when you do become a consultant, you have a lot of other competing interests and the money plans never really eventuate. So I speak to physicians all the time who are in their late 50s and who are relatively have a low net worth because they'd realized and fallen into this mindset trap of I will make my decisions once I become a consultant. Well, guess what happened? Life happened. They become a consultant in their 30s or in their 40s. And now 20 years later, still haven't had got them investing life sorted out. It's a real risk. And there's a very real and harsh penalty for delaying your investing plan. So if you're a JMO, intern, junior nurse, allied health professional, or even a healthcare student, pay attention right now and have a plan. Don't delay the inevitable because what tends to happen is that delay, that lack of inertia, leads to terrible, terrible financial outcomes as you go through your career. And I cannot stress that enough. And I'm not overblowing this. This is a real problem in the healthcare industry. And I can extrapolate this to other industries, engineering, tech, lawyers, accountants, tradespersons. You got to start early because that is the number one risk that younger people face. I will invest later in life when I have more money. It never eventuates. Now, with regards to side hustles, here are some of the ones that I've done myself. Number one is teaching. I love teaching. Teaching high school students, teaching medical students, teaching medical entrance processes. Tutors back then even used to get paid quite a lot of money. And even now I teach registrars. I have my own little side gig. I did a lot of eBay when I was in medical school and uh, even as an intern. And I did a lot of drop shipping and import and export, particularly buying products from China back then. And it was a relatively simple process to set up and I had a great eBay rating. You know, nowadays there's other businesses like Etsy, which you can utilize to make extra money. Um, Nowadays you have Airtasker. Now, if you're good with your hands and want to help out, you could do some odd jobs here or there to improve your fitness. I had actually a CEO of a company who came out, I think I might've mentioned this in one of the previous episodes, to assemble my treadmill. Uh, I'm terrible with my hands in terms of assembling things and furniture stuff and light fittings and all that sort of stuff. And I'm terrible with handyman work. And he came out and we got chatting and, and that's when he told me that he was actually a company CEO. I said to him, why do you do this as a CEO? And he said, it keeps him fit. That's one of the things that he really enjoys because he hates running and he hates jogging and he hates walking and he hates, you know, treadmill work. He wants to go out and do physical manual labor. And he says he doesn't do it for the money. And in fact, the money that he charged me was actually very, very reasonable to assemble a pretty complicated treadmill device. So, and he did it primarily through Airtasker. So I think Airtasker is really great if you're interested in side hustles. Now, locuming, this is practically what I did. And I doubled my income. Dare I say, nowadays, training positions pay uh, very little money for doing your job. And we know that hospitals employ junior doctors because you guys and girls cost less. And I don't think that just doing your bare minimum work is going to be enough to get you ahead. Now, locums for um, other professions like adult health and nursing is a real possibility. Agency nurses are actually killing it in 2023 due to the demand for nursing. Now, recently I attended a conference in Hobart 
And on the flight was an optometrist who explained how he locums a lot and gets paid money to do so. All his food and all his expenses and accommodation is taken care of. So there's plenty of options out there for people that want to do locum. And you might want to do it during your downtime. Is there an opportunity to simply work more where you're currently working and make more and make some more overtime and invest all of it? Rural health networks will pay you overtime because it actually works out cheaper to pay you overtime than it is to get a locum. Now, think about casual bank positions within the healthcare sector, particularly in the hospital network sector that you work in. This is basically internal locums, whether it be for medical or nursing or allied health. Rather than getting external locums, this means you get first dibs on your preferences and shifts. Now, I locumed my own annual leave or part of it at the Royal Melbourne Hospital because they couldn't fill it back in the day. Now, I was even cracking $180,000 as an RMO1 just after internship back in the day and saved a lot of that money and bought my first home very early in my career and paid it off within a few years. Now, this was only possible because I utilised my downtime to make extra money. Now, of course, you need to think about this very carefully because you don't want to burn out. And I was very careful in making sure that I didn't burn out because I recognised the risks of burnout. I recognised the risks of making mistakes when you're working multiple jobs and having locum shifts and having long hours. So you've got to do it and only you will know what is appropriate and what is not in your field. I can't tell you that, but certainly ignore locums at your own peril because, you know, there's a bit of a goldmine happening out there. And I recently did an episode with one of the uh, owners and operators of uh, One Medical who um, talked about uh, locums and, you know, some of the opportunities, some of the things that they encounter when dealing with locums. So I think it's important if you're interested, go back and listen to that episode. Now, fitness and personal training. I know one doctor who listens to this episode and this podcast channel who's a fitness fanatic and does personal training sessions with his clients, charges $120 or more per hour. And the advantage is he gets fit while he does it and makes money. What's interesting that he was telling me is that as a doctor, it was actually very easy for him to get fitness clients because clients felt, and he was just leveraging his position as a doctor in order to get clients because they wanted to pick his brain about the healthcare sector and talk about his experience as a doctor. So that was very, very interesting. Now, uh, at his level, earning $120 an hour is not big money, but he loves it because he gets fit. So he doesn't have to do his own exercise. He just basically does it as a side gig. Telehealth. If you're a nurse, there are plenty of telehealth opportunities out there for your expertise and skill. Same with doctors. Leverage that as much as possible. Now, telehealth, as much as you like it or dislike it, is here to stay. Who wouldn't want to sit at their home office, drink tea and provide advice over the phone? I think there's a real life practical application for people to provide service, particularly in the healthcare industry, for telehealth. What about first aid and CPR courses? This is a bit of a goldmine at present, as more and more education is going on about first aid. You could do it yourself post-credentialing and start your own side hustle business about first aid. I know uh, emergency um, doctors do this all the time. They set up their own ALS courses because, you know, ALS courses are at least, you're looking at about fifteen dollars to $3,000, particularly ALS too. And you do, you know, 20, 30 candidates at any one time over a weekend. That's a fair bit of coin. Immunisation nurse. Now, this is a huge opportunity 
for nurses who want to work in GP clinics, pharmacies or immunisation clinics, even for private organisations, particularly banks, particularly corporations like mining companies, financial sectors, big businesses, retailers. They want to provide a safe and secure environment for their employees. So they will be paying an immunisation nurse to come out and do vaccinations, particularly for flu season, every single year. And it's all non-Medicare rebatable. So it's, it's a lot of money that they spend to make sure that their employees are fit and healthy because a fit and healthy workforce makes more money for them because they can come to work. Now, there are literally heaps more opportunities. These are just tips of the icebergs. But the main ones I did was teaching, eBay, buying and selling products and drop shipping, and arbitraging the price differences. Nowadays, I only teach, but more so because I like it, rather than for the money. Now, with respect to exams, exams are tough and they cost a lot of money. What I did was save 100% of my extra money that I earned through locum agencies and then use that for exams and college fees. But I also invested a fair bit of it. Now, you may not want to locum. You may not want to do extra work and you may want to just do your usual work because, you know, studying for exams and doing extra work is tough but it just means that you won't have enough left over for investing. And that worries me because essentially it's good to invest in yourself. Don't get me wrong, but you're kind of putting all the eggs in one basket. And of course, this all depends on your personal philosophy. Now here's the bottom line. There is no easy way to build wealth. It's slow. It's boring. It's steady. And you'll find the first 10 years of your junior doctor years, you feel like you're making little progress. The next 10 years, once you reach consultancy, if you have those behavioural elements down packed, you tend to feel good about the progress, but you sort of go, am I making enough progress? And the risk here is you take too much risk. You go into alternative investments. And as a result, you may lose money. So it's really important to have a behaviour and a plan and execute it. And the last 10 years, hopefully you reach financial independence and you don't need to work as much. It sounds simple because it kind of is. Now that's about it for this episode. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using or leave a five-star review on all of the platforms. That's even better. And please leave a positive review. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to these episodes and I put a lot of thought and effort into these episodes. My name's Dev Raga and this is My Millennium Money Professional. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast and Glenn James are authorised representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services licence 451289. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.